Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. So today, our guest is Beijing-based conservationist and birder Terry Townsend. Terry is an advisor at the Paulson Institute. He has a background in environmental law and wildlife conservation, and since 2010, he has been based in Beijing, where he initially served as an advisor to the Chinese government on climate change law. And last year, in 2021, he was awarded a gold Beijing Citizen Award by Xinjiangbao. This is Beijing News for services to the environment, and he was the first foreign recipient in its history. Terry has also funneled his love for wildlife conservation into creating Birding Beijing, a website aimed at tracking many of Beijing's iconic birds. Terry has also worked on projects to help save some of China's most endangered birds from extinction, as well as wildlife conservation projects. Focusing specifically on the snow leopard, so I'm very excited to chat with Terry about birds and biodiversity in a place people normally do not think of anything else except as the capital of China, Beijing. It, it always seems like this enormous city. Let's see the different side of Beijing. So thank you, Terry. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you, May. It's a pleasure to to join you on this podcast. So, as as I was just saying, even thinking about Beijing, I close my eyes and I already see the CCTV tower, the traffic jam on the Third Ring Road. It's not a place that strikes people as biodiverse. But the other day, you told me it ranks number two. Behind only Brasilia in G20 capitals for the number of bird species recorded, the mammals that can be found, including wild cats of all amazing mammals, and insects, I find it mind blowing. Tell us more. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think when most people think of Beijing, they they don't automatically think of the, the wildlife that can be found there. I think. In fact,、no. um, during the the COVID lockdown, I did an experiment with my contacts online, and I, I asked them what's the first word that comes into their head when they hear Beijing. And by far the most popular response was pollution. Oh my god!、And、so this is <laughs> so、uh, this is Beijing's image, you know,、um, internationally. It is quite poor, you know, environmentally. But you know, when I when I first arrived in Beijing. You know, and, and people found out. I was a bird watcher. I like to watch birds. You know, they sort of look at me like I'm crazy and say, "Why are you in Beijing? You know, there's no birds in Beijing." But of course, very quickly, as I started to explore around, I realised that that wasn't the case, and and that actually Beijing is a really good place for birds. And you know, and it's not just the sort of diversity of species. It was also the numbers were way beyond anything I ever used to see in Europe, and so. Very quickly, I, th- I thought, why? Why is Beijing so good? And so you sort of start to look into it, and then you realise that just like real estate, it's all about location, you know, location, <laughs> location, location. Because Beijing, if you, if you look at a map, we have to the north, we have this vast area, Siberia. You know,、mm. Very few people living there. Huge forests, and further north, you get the tundra. And 
in summer, there's this huge explosion of insects, very high protein food for birds. And so millions and millions of birds fly north in the springtime to take advantage of this food source because mm -hmm. they're able to breed, uh, have more babies more quickly than if they'd stayed further south. So it's worth it, that investment of energy to fly north. But of course, in winter, this area is inhospitably cold. You know, it can get down to minus 50 uh, degrees Celsius. You know, so there are very few insects at that season. And so the vast majority of these birds must depart uh, and head south in order to survive and, and find food. And so in the autumn, you get this mass exodus from Siberia. And birds don't like to cross big inhospitable areas like deserts and oceans. So again, if you look at that map, you know, not far to the west of Beijing, you have the Gobi Desert, which is a vast area, um, not very uh, suitable for many birds. And right. uh, of course, not far to the east, you also have the ocean. Uh -huh. So there's a little bit of a funneling effect that happens that funnels a lot of these birds from Siberia through northeast China. And so there's this huge, like, we, we describe it as a sort of expressway for birds. Uh -huh. So every, every autumn, you get these millions of birds on this at rush hour uh, crowding through this expressway. You know, and some of them will stop, spend the winter in Beijing. Others will spend the winter in South China, Southeast Asia, or even Australia, New Zealand. And some even go as far as Africa. Uh, and Beijing is like a service station on this expressway. So, because um, <laughs> yeah. we have forests, we have parks, we have wetlands. So we have these different types of habitats in Beijing that attract different birds. And of course, again, in the springtime, when the birds are, are returning, they're flying north and again you know we're like a service station here on on the journey north so twice mm -hmm. a year spring and autumn beijing becomes alive with migratory birds yeah and it can be spectacular i think most people in beijing have no awareness of this um and and the reason the reason is that most of this migration actually happens at night so so as we're as we're sleeping in our beds um in spring and autumn, millions of birds are flying over. And in fact, we just this autumn, we did an experiment uh, where we put a sound recorder on the roof of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is in a great location because it's very central Beijing, but it's also very quiet. It's not near a major road and it gets no air traffic. And we set it to record every night from sunset to sunrise from late August through to early November. And astonishingly, we recorded more than 34,000 calls of birds flying over. So as these birds are flying, they call to each other, they keep in touch. We got this incredible volume of, of birds <laughs> flying over and just over, you know, one building in, in Beijing. And so we know that only a small portion of the birds probably are calling. So for every call we pick up, there are probably many, many more that are flying over at the same time. But we recorded, yeah, more than 34,000 calls of about 57 species so far we've identified, um, which just sort of gives an insight into the the volume of birds that, that are flying over Beijing uh, at night as we sleep. I cannot, <laughs> cannot imagine. That is such a shocking image 
um, yeah. to, to someone who knows Beijing City, I think I know Beijing City relatively well, lived there for many years. And I, I remember, I think the first time I went birding with Jim Harkness, you probably know of him. Oh, yeah, from the International Crime Foundation. Yeah. Way back, yes. And now I think mm -hmm. he's with National Geographic. And this was 20 something odd years ago. We drove in the dead of winter out to Huairo, somewhere by a Shuiku, by a mm -hmm. reservoir, yeah. and, and yeah, saw yeah. birds. But in the city, I think the only birds we saw were the old men in the bird cages, <laughs> holding the bird cages, <laughs> walking to the park. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how surprising. It's another side of Beijing, yeah, that um, one of my objectives really is, is to raise awareness about this uh, incredible rich biodiversity that we have in Beijing, because um, there's a very famous quote by a conservationist uh, from Senegal back in the 1970s, who said, everyone wants to protect what they love, but we can only love what we know. And so the first step you know, is knowing about this incredible, rich biodiversity that we have in Beijing. And I think by, by learning about it and finding out some of the incredible stories about some of these migratory birds and other wildlife that we have in Beijing, because they really are spectacular. But these, these stories really inspire people and they make people fall in love with nature. And, Absolutely. you know, and of course, the more that people fall in love with nature, the more they want to protect it and the more they build support for policies and, and mechanisms to protect not only the, the, the species, but also the places that they need as well. So yeah. I think this, this awareness is critical. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think only by knowing that biodiversity is not something that's exclusively out there on the Tibetan plateau, but it's literally in our backyard, on our rooftop, outside <laughs> my window in the big city of Beijing. And, and that makes a huge difference. But you mentioned these are migratory birds. These are flying, you know, through help me understand as a sort of non-scientific person, help me understand how birds proliferation and diversity of birds directly linked to dragonflies and butterflies who are local, I assume, and also the wild cats, etc. What's the relationship there? Yeah, I mean, most of the birds that, that um, I mentioned, you know, it's more than 500 species have been recorded in Beijing. The vast majority of those are migratory, so they, they're not in Beijing all the time, you know. But if we look at the resident wildlife in Beijing, you know, it is also relatively rich you know we have wild cats in in beijing very few major capital cities have wild cat they're not actually that uncommon we have something called the leopard cat the bao mao which is found in the mountains and the wetlands around beijing generally in the outskirts you know not not in the city center right yeah you know, and, and they're, they're fairly common you know they're not often seen in fact they're very rarely seen during the daytime because they're primarily nocturnal uh, mm -hmm. So we don't get to see them. But but in fact, yesterday morning, because I, I set up a, a few camera traps, infrared cameras in on the outskirts of Beijing. And yesterday morning, my phone pinged and it sent me a video from half past six yesterday morning of a leopard cat walking right past one of my cameras, um, which is fantastic. Fantastic. Yes, yeah, very, very lucky to, um, to capture one like that. They're around, but they're just very rarely seen. You know, they keep out mm. of the way of humans and active at night. You know, of course, again, when we're asleep in our beds. But then, of course, you know, if we look beyond that to the to the insects that we mentioned, um, you know, dragonflies and butterflies, spectacular insects. And, and there are more species here than there are in the whole of the UK. 
of both of those categories, you know, which to me was quite shocking. Unbelievable. It, it probably says more about the UK, actually, in terms of how <laughs> wildlife depleted the UK is. But nevertheless, you know, I think Beijing's freshwater systems, the rivers, you know, it has quite a few rivers, including in the higher parts of Beijing, higher elevations, you know, in the north, in Yanqing and Mentogo in the west. So you get these different elevations and different habitats, and that's suitable for different species, you know, the different species that, that have these different niches and at different elevations, different types of habitat, different fast moving water or slow moving water. So that it's a suitable place for, for many of these dragonflies, you know, which are spectacular. So, so yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not only birds, it's, there are other, other types of animal that Beijing has, you know, which, which again is, is something that I think ought to be celebrated. Absolutely. Yeah. More people should, should know about it. Cause I think it does build a sense of pride among city dwellers. You know, if they know that they've got so many birds here, they've got wildcats and, you know, people start to feel proud about that, you know, and I think that's really important. And I think also in terms of changing Beijing's image, you know, from this yeah. pollution, <laughs> hopefully, you know, yeah. in a few years time that the first word that comes into people's heads will be wildlife or leopard cats or, you know, dragonflies, whatever it might be. That would be amazing. And we have you to <laughs> thank. <laughs> now, Beijing Swift, tell us the story. Maybe first describe. What is it? Beijing Swift, I think of Kuai Di. <laughs> yeah. I think of like the 30 minute career of services, yeah. the internet age. What is it? Yeah, well, the Beijing Swift, yeah, is not a courier company. Um, <laughs> it, it is a bird. It's a very, very special bird. So if I think most Beijingers will have seen them before. They may not have necessarily known what they are. But if you go to one of the historic buildings in Beijing, uh, in the summertime from about April to the end of July, such as Tiananmen or Zhongyangmen Gate at the, the, the south end of Tiananmen, Yonghegong, Temple of Heaven, all of these places have breeding swifts. And swifts, they're a striking looking bird. They have very long, thin wings. They can fit into the palm of your hand, so they're not particularly big, but they're specially designed, if you like, for or evolved for flight. So they have these long, thin wings. Their body shape is like a torpedo. So they cut through the air very easily. And mm. they live almost, or almost their entire life cycle is in the air. So they eat in the air, they drink in the air, and they even sleep in the air. So they're very specialized animals. And in fact, an evolutionary biologist once told me that the swift is, is right at the vanguard of evolution. So we have species on our planet whose whole life cycle is in the ocean. We have species whose whole life cycle is on the terrestrial, mm -hmm. but there are no species yet that have their whole life cycle in the air, but the swift mm. is the closest to it. So the only time it lands is to lay its eggs and feed the babies. The rest of the time they're in the air the whole time. And so when they are migrating, they'll come to Beijing every April and they disappear the end of July after they've raised their young. And when they leave Beijing at the end of July, they almost certainly don't land until they come back to Beijing the following April. Wow. So the whole of our winter time, they're in the air. <laughs> so when people hear this 
story you know they're like wow really you know that, yeah. that can't be true how do they sleep in the air don't they just fall out or do they bump into something um you know what happens to their babies do they take the babies along well the yeah the, when they have their young it, it's it, sometimes people put cameras into the nests and the, the the young have been just before they fly for the first time they've been seen like doing these little almost like sit-ups press-ups um, and they're strengthening their wings, you know, because they know that when they leave the nest, you know, they, they may not be landing for some time. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then the, the Swift, I mean, was, it ha actually has a special connection with Beijing going back to the 1400s. So originally Swift used to nest on cliffs in sort of little holes in cliffs. And then when the original city was built in the 1400s and the city walls, that provided sort of artificial nest sites for, for the Swift. So holes in the walls and the traditional buildings in Beijing, you know, like Temple mm -hmm. of Heaven and, and the Zhongyang Men, um, they have these beams, uh, wooden beams, um, that mm. are perfect ledges for the Swifts to, to nest, to lay their eggs. And so mm. the Swifts moved into the city in, in the 1400s and mm. they've been part of the city's culture ever since. And one resident told me that old Beijingers used to think that their ancestors came back as Swifts. So I think there's this strong cultural connection with the Swift in Beijing. And, and I know the old name for Beijing is Yen Jing and Yen is the character for Swift or Swallow. And I don't know if that originates from, from that meaning, but you know, that it's a plausible theory that it could uh, mm -hmm. relate to that. So what's the, what's the Chinese name for Beijing Swift? The scientific name is Apis Apis Pekinensis, and officially the name is uh, Putong Yuyen, Yuyen, which is like rain swallow or rain swift. But um, it's sort of commonly known as the Beijing Swift, the Beijing Yuyen, because the scientific name is Pekinensis. Uh, it's a subspecies of the common swift, which is found right across Eurasia. And it was first mm -hmm. described actually by a British um, scientist uh, Robert Swinhoe uh, and he he gave it the name Pekinensis because he first found this bird in the area of Peking mm -hmm. so th so this bird it, it arrives every April it leaves in July but one of the things that that we never knew was where the swift went when it left Beijing in July this was a bit of a mystery and of course thanks to modern technology now we're able to track birds in a way that you know was impossible until a few years ago. And in fact, in Europe, they had been tracking swifts for a few years from, from UK, from, from Sweden. And they found that those birds went to, to Africa for the winter, you know, which is not surprising because it's sort of fairly straight north-south mm -hmm. direction. Yeah. And um, just purely by chance, that when I was back in London one time, I bumped into a man called Dick Newell, who is a, a real swift enthusiast. And he's studied swifts in the UK. He spends a lot of time, he dedicates a lot of his time to conserving swifts. And, um, and he said, oh, uh, you're in Beijing. Um, you know, do you think anyone will be interested in tracking the Beijing swifts uh, to find out where they go? He said, now we've got the experience of doing that in Europe, it'd be fantastic to see where the Beijing swifts go. So I said, oh, well, let me speak to a few people when I get back to Beijing and you know, very quickly, when I went to speak 
with people from the Beijing Birdwatching Society and some professors at Beijing Normal University. They were like, yes, yes, let's do it, you know. And this guy very kindly offered, Dick Newley, very kindly offered to pay for some of the tracking devices and to come to Beijing and to help train some of the local people about how to fit these devices and give them the software to be able to analyze the data. And um, before you know it, we're, we're at the Summer Palace um, where there's quite a big colony of, of swifts that have been studied by the Beijing Birdwatching Society for several years. So they have a project where they every year they catch some, they put up these special nets, catch a few, and they put a little ring on their leg, which has a unique uh, identification number. And then uh, over time, they're able to tell that these birds are very loyal to the same sites. So they come back year after year to the same place. Um, and they were able to tell roughly how old or how long they live. Um, and, but they didn't know where they went, obviously. So we sort of piggybacked on this project. Um, so we accompanied the, the Beijing Birdwatching Society to the Summer Palace. We caught um, some swifts and we fitted uh, 31 geolocators to to these birds so we fitted geolocators to 31 birds and these are tiny little devices uh the recommendation is that they're less than five percent of the body weight so they can carry something that's less than five percent of the body weight uh, anything more you know it becomes uh a bit too much of a burden mm -hmm. so they they fit like a like a little backpack so they have a little harness that comes around the shoulder like this mm -hmm. so it's just like they're going to school with their books and their pet lunch so they have a little harness that fits over the shoulder and then the device itself sort of fits among the feathers on the back. Mm -hmm. And then we release them. And the thing about these geolocators is that they don't transmit the data. So we cannot follow them in real time. What we have to do is wait the whole year, come back to the Summer Palace and catch the same birds to be able to take off the backpack and then download the data. <laughs> But we already knew, of course, from the study that these birds are very loyal to this site. So we knew there was a very high chance that the birds that we had fitted these geolocators to would come back to the same site the following year. Wow. And so, of course, we had a lot of time to speculate about where the swifts would go for the winter. You know, and I think there were several theories. You know, some people thought, well, they might just go to South China, you know, South China in you know, Hainan, a lot of people go to Hainan in winter. It's a very nice place to spend the winter. <laughs> it's quite warm, you know, a lot of insects. And some people thought, no, maybe they'll go to India. You know, India, again, you know, quite warm in our winter, a lot of insects. Some people thought maybe Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Malaysia, Indonesia would be an obvious place. And so a year later, we went back to the Summer Palace and in one hour, we managed to catch 13 of the original 31, which was incredible, really. It was a high, higher number than we expected um, because obviously you don't catch all the birds that are in that colony. You just catch a fraction of them. So to get 13 uh, in that first hour was incredible. And of course, everyone was very excited when we got the first one <laughs> with a geolocator. Um, yeah, and we took the, took the harness off and uh, released the bird and connected the backpack to the laptop and you know you could see the data downloading and and so we're all sort of crowded around waiting for this map to appear that would show us where this bird had been in in the 12 months since we last saw it and then a few seconds later 
you know, bang, there it was. And incredibly, we could see that these birds go all the way to South Africa uh, for for the northern winter. South <laughs> yeah. Africa. So they didn't go to Southeast Asia <laughs> or, or India <laughs> or Hainan. They, they go all the way to South Africa. And I think what's also interesting is that when they leave Beijing, they don't head south. They actually head northwest into Mongolia. And then they go around the Himalayas to the north before then heading south uh, through Iran and then uh, Arabia and then into northeast Africa. And then they gradually make their way down to central Africa and then to South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, that type of area for the deep winter before coming back a very similar route. That's the ultra, ultra marathon in one year. Yeah, exactly. So I think they crossed something like 18 borders. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, and we're, and we're pretty confident that they do this journey without landing. So from the moment they leave Beijing to when they come back to Beijing the following spring, they almost certainly don't land. And the, the reason we think that is that in Europe, they track swifts from Sweden with something called an accelerometer, which can tell about the movement of the bird. So is the bird moving or is it stationary? Mm -hmm. And they've been able to prove using that technology that most of the birds are constantly in flight mm -hmm. uh, from when they, they leave Sweden to, to when they, they come back the following spring. So they're, they're an incredible species, you know, and I think for Beijing to have these birds and for us to sort of learn this story, I think is a, fantastic way to inspire people you know about wildlife and and nature absolutely um so yeah incredible incredible birds and i think since we found out this incredible journey it's resulted in a lot of initiatives that were impossible to foresee when we started this project so for example i think one of the most exciting is from school children you know, I, I visit a lot of schools in Beijing to talk about biodiversity and birds and so on. Of course, the swift is a bird that we talk about. And one of the things we talk about is the fact that the population of the swift has gone down over the last few decades because we've lost a lot of the old buildings in Beijing. Mm. Um, so, that you know, they love these traditional buildings um, that have these nooks and crannies and the ledges in the roof and so on. Right. And of course, we've lost a lot of those buildings in Beijing. We still have the big tourist attractions like Yonghe Gong, Temple of Heaven and so on, but we've lost a lot of the other the smaller buildings. Mm. And so the students are like, oh, is there anything we can do to help? You know, they, they become so attached to this bird, listening to the story, that they want to help it, which is a great example of how, you know, awareness, you fall in love with it, you want to protect it. And of course, there is something that students can do. So one of the things people do in Europe is they make special nest boxes for swifts, which have the right size holes and the right size compartment for the nest inside and put them up on their buildings. And so we started to do this now in Beijing. And so several schools said, oh, can we do that? You know, we can make it in our woodwork class and we can put them up on our school campus. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's about, I think it's six or seven schools now in Beijing that have made and directed special swift boxes. And, and at least some of them have been successful in attracting breeding swifts. But then at one school I visited, an eight-year-old girl put her hand up and said, well, it's very easy for us to make 
nest boxes and put them up on our schools. But can we also write to the bosses of the building companies and ask them to make their new buildings more friendly for Swift? <laughs> and what a great idea, right? <laughs> what a fantastic idea. And so four students got together from different schools in Beijing, all girls, a mixture of state schools and international schools. And they wrote a joint letter to probably the most famous head of a building company in China at that time, uh, Pan Shi <laughs> uh, of Soho, China. Of course. And they wrote a letter to him asking to meet him to talk about the, the Swift. And he wrote back and oh. um, said, yes, please come and see me. And so we arranged this little workshop where the four students, um, we called them Swift ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And each one presented to Pan Shi and his team about one aspect of the Swift. So the first one talked about the incredible lifestyle in the air, how they eat in the air, drink in the air, sleep in the air. <laughs> yeah, the second one talked about the incredible migration to Africa. Mm -hmm. And the third one talked about how population has been falling because of the loss of the old style buildings. And the fourth right. one talked about what schools were doing to help. And then they sort of collectively asked him, can you also help Mr. Pan? And he, he got up and he said, I, I didn't know about this bird before. And he said, we've been making buildings in Beijing for 20 years to make people's lives better. And he said, I realize now we should be making buildings not only to make people's lives better, but also for nature. And uh, so he, he made a commitment um, to put up 200 nest boxes onto his existing buildings and to consider integrating into the design of new buildings, the right size holes for the Swifts and also to promote nature and biodiversity among the building sector in China, mm. yeah, which was an incredible outcome, you know, from four students writing a letter to Mr. Pan. <laughs> That's a great story. And not a lot of people know that, that Pan Shi is actually an amateur carpenter. So he loves to make things out of wood. And so before this workshop, he'd actually already investigated the design of a swiftness box and made some to give to the students that he'd signed. So, so ones that he'd made personally out of discarded wood from building sites that ordinarily would have been thrown away. He, he made some boxes and gave them to the students. Yeah, and, and I think it, it just shows how, you know, with very little effort, actually, you know, it's, it's very low cost to Soho, very small effort, but great publicity for them. And just yeah. shows how easy actually it is to, once we think about it, to integrate biodiversity and nature into our building sector. And in fact, all of urban planning, you know, we, yeah. there's so much Indeed. we can do, just little things that can make a big difference for wildlife. And for Chinese students, particularly the next generation, it's the taking initiative to initiate change. I think that's very, very impressive. Yes. Well, we didn't chat prior to this, but Zhang Xin and Pan Xi are dear friends of mine. We run marathons together, so I do know his, his woodworking and all that. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is fascinating, but I want to pivot the conversation a little bit because you were talking about we, the kids, and 
I definitely, from our prior conversations here, there is this growing interest among Chinese youngsters or even, you know, the older generation, just citizens in Beijing. And in fact, around the whole country, there's this growing interest in birding. What have you experienced in, in that area? And how is yeah. this group sort of shaping conservation in some ways? Tell us some stories that inspired you there. Absolutely. I think there's been, I mean, I sort of describe it really as an environmental awakening mm. that I've seen over the last 10 years. I mean, certainly when I first came to Beijing, you would not see another birdwatcher. I would go to the best birdwatching sites in Beijing, you know, at weekends and sometimes weekdays, and, and you would never see another birdwatcher. Mm. You know, it, it was extremely rare. But of course now, you know, if you go to any birdwatching site, whether it's a, a major park or a reservoir or grassland, you will definitely meet many <laughs> birdwatchers, whether it's a weekday or a weekend. So I think that sort of illustrates the increase in interest in birdwatching in China. And there's also a statistic in the year 2000, I think there were only three birdwatching societies across the whole of China. One was Hong Kong, one was Beijing, and I think one in maybe Chengdu or somewhere. And now there are more than 100, you know, regional and local birdwatching societies across China. So I think that also fits the sort of anecdotal evidence of, of seeing more birdwatchers around. And I think it's not just birds. There's a growing interest in all kinds of wildlife. So in addition to birdwatching societies, there are more and more local NGOs. In fact, I'm wearing one here, Shanshui. Oh, Yes. <laughs> which is um, a conservation NGO set up by Lu Zhe, Peking University, and uh, I work very closely with them. They specialize on the Tibetan Plateau in particular. Mm -hmm. They're also moving more into urban wildlife, so they have programs in Beijing and Shanghai now. But there are many, many more NGOs springing up across China dedicated to specific species, whether it's the snow leopard or the gibbons in Yunnan, you know, or tigers in northeast Hainan gibbon, and sort of species and habitats too. So there are wetland NGOs, there are mangrove NGOs. So there's been a real explosion of interest in nature and wildlife and wild species, uh, which, is, which is great to see. Yeah, I've seen similar kind of explosion of interest in this area. One thing that particularly interests me is in China, traditionally, there's quite a separation of, say, conservation and environmental sciences. These are separate, completely separated from people's everyday lives. This sort of birding ornithology is a science that belongs to professors or, you know, Institute of Ornithology or whatever it is. And because there was a lack of tools and information, education platforms for commoner people like me, who is just asking, what's that red bird to have access to knowledge? How has that changed the access to information and tools to helping people grow these hobbies? You're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that I think 20 years ago was the first readily available bird guide uh, produced for China. And of course, it was written not by a Chinese, unfortunately, it was written by a, a British guy, John McKinnon. And that book, a sort of field guide to the birds of China, became the sort of Bible for birdwatchers and introduced many, many young people, particularly into uh, birdwatching. 
uh, and got an interest in birds. And astonishingly, really, it's only the last couple of years that we've seen more national field guides to the birds of China. But now I think there are three coming out in you know, the space of six months. So, but in addition to that, there have been lots of regional guides. You know, I mean, China is a huge country, as we know, vast country. You know, and so to produce a guide to all the birds of China, you're talking about 1,400, 1,500 different species. Yeah, is a massive job. <laughs> so it's sort of understandable why there haven't been that many. But there have been a lot of more regional focused guides. So Southeast China or, or you know, East China or Beijing or other places. That's certainly growing. And I, I've just recently been sent a field guide to the wildlife of the Tibetan Plateau, you know, which is a new guide that's been you know, completely produced by Chinese, local mm. Chinese, um, which is wonderful to see. So these kinds of resources are growing. And of course, in the digital age, you know, there's a lot now going on to apps and various other electronic media. Mm -hmm. You know, now you can get apps that tell you information about different bird species, how they sound, what they look like, their range, everything. You know, and you, you can even get apps where, you know, if you hear a bird, you can record it and it will tell you what it is. You know, it's just pretty incredible technology. It's moving very, very so more and more resources are becoming available for ordinary people, ordinary citizens to be able to access and enjoy these hobbies. Because I think, you know, if you don't have any information and you don't really know what you're looking at and it's hard to learn, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of interest out. Whereas if you, if you can learn about what you're seeing and um, uh, very quickly identify it and compare it with others and so on, then it just brings, it enriches that hobby in a way that, it's hard to do otherwise and i think this sort of also is part of a bigger picture in china in terms of promoting the environment importance of the environment you know and i think we see that sort of right from the top in terms of the ecological civilization which is promoted a lot by president xi it is sort of a recognition that you can't have a healthy economy without a healthy environment and, yeah. you know, there's a great emphasis now on quality of economic growth rather than quantity, you know, which obviously previous few decades we saw incredible economic growth, but at huge environmental cost, you know, air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution and so on. Yeah. And in the last few years, there's been a change of direction and they've successfully tackled many of those problems. We've seen a strengthening of environmental legislation. We've seen an update on the wildlife protection law, list of protected species. We've seen the creation of a national park system to protect and celebrate China's most important natural heritage. We've mm. seen a ban on coastal wetland reclamation in the Yellow Sea and the move to protect the remaining sites and inscribe them as world heritage sites. We've mm. seen the criteria on which local politicians are evaluated, including environmental criteria now and a given you know, similar weight to GDP delivery. So all of these things, I think, are, are moving in the right direction in terms of China's awareness on environment, mm -hmm. public awareness. And I think, you know, last year, China also hosted the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, right. um, COP15, as it's yes. known, uh, in Kuming. And part two of that conference will happen this year. Yeah, and this is a really, really important moment because 190 countries are due to agree on a new global biodiversity framework uh, for the mm. next 10 years, you know, to try to 
slow and halt biodiversity loss yeah. worldwide. So it's a hugely important moment. And I think the fact that China is hosting that meeting is also you know, another indicator of the importance of the environment in terms of Chinese government right now. And I think one of the things that impressed me about COP15 part one in Kunming in October was that given the way the media works in China, you know, they were clearly told to focus on biodiversity. So every newspaper, every TV station led with stories about the importance of biodiversity and the fact that China was hosting this huge international event. So that in itself, you know, to me, is a huge outcome of that conference because it's raised awareness among the whole population about the importance of biodiversity, you know, which I think it's difficult to overestimate the impact of that. I think that you know, there's a lot of things moving in the right direction. There's still a hell of a long way to go, of course, but I think it is important to recognise the progress that's been made over the last few years. And I do think that's sort of reflected in the number of young people now taking an interest and you know, setting up these NGOs, becoming birdwatchers and whatever it might be. Everyone knows that I'm involved in tourism sector, right? And sustainable tourism and birding is one of the main ones, even in this area. I think what I've witnessed was in 2003, 2002, 2003, that was the time when, while China actually ran birding journeys with American Birding Association, ABA, and we took them Poyanghu, Beijing, and also went down to Yunnan, Gaolikongshan, Baihualing to look at forest birds and all of that. And in particular, Baihualing, at that time, locals didn't know what all these people were here for. Uh, we were there looking for birds, and the only one who could really communicate with the guests on the same level, or more as an expert, was Mr. Han Lianxian. You probably know of him a very well-respected birder, ornithologist mm -hmm. in Yunnan. And now, Gaolikongshan itself, that little Baihualing, the village there, every household, <laughs> every guest house is hosting birders yeah. <laughs> in birding season. That's right. And in other parts of Yunnan, they are also doing that. So yeah, that from another data point to show the growth of interest. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think every family there, they sort of run a hide, right? A bird hide, a blind, as they call them in North America. And so you can go there as a bird watcher or a photographer and they'll say, which species do you want to see? And they'll say, well, okay, you need to go to hide number three between sort of two and 4 p.m. That's when that bird comes <laughs> and so on. So it's very, very organized. I think it's incredible because talking about community involvement the villagers know so much about their birds and they mm -hmm. wouldn't shoot their birds because the birds bring them different exactly, income stream yeah. it's it's really positive one very important question so the last time i developed that itinerary with a birding expert was spending one week in Gaoligongshan, i think it was late march and that trip actually ended in beijing without going to beidaihe because we ran into sars but in any event, so that journey was one week in Gaolikongshan to see the migratory birds in the south and forest birds there. Um, but one week in Beidaihe is more of ocean migratory mm -hmm. birds here. If you were designing your ideal China birding journey, where would you go? I only give you two weeks. I'm sorry. Two weeks. <laughs> I was going to say, how long do I get? Because, um, you know, it's a vast country and, uh, you know, there are pretty special places all over. I mean, to me, I think the must see 
or the must experience. I think the Yellow Sea migration along the coast in the spring of the shorebirds, you know, and, and these are incredible travellers that are going from Australia, New Zealand up to the Arctic and back, you know, every year. And the spectacle of seeing them on the mudflats, you know, as the tide comes in and out, as they're wheeling around, is just incredible. And I think what adds a lot to that is the, the story of these birds' migration, you know, and I remember talking to a professor recently, Professor Tunis Piersmer in the Netherlands, who's an expert on shorebird migration. And he said a few years ago, biologists would have said it was impossible for birds to fly from the Arctic nonstop to Australia and New Zealand. It's just, physiologically, it's just impossible, the way that birds are made. But then a few years ago, they tracked a Bartel Godwit from Alaska using a tracking device they proved that it flew non-stop from alaska to new zealand wow and they're like how could that possibly happen and then when they studied these birds they found out they're like transformers so before they take off on this migration they're basically an eating machine and they, <laughs> they put on weight and they almost double their normal body weight and that's their fuel the fat and then just before they take off they transform their body so their heart doubles in size to be able to pump the blood around its body to get the oxygen to the muscles for this incredible flight that's about to undertake. So the heart doubles in size. The digestive organs, after putting on all that weight, shrink because they don't need their digestive organs for this long flight. They're not going to eat. <laughs> so they shrink them um, so that they less weight. And so they literally transform themselves from an eating machine to a flying machine. My goodness. And then they set off on these incredible journeys. And then, of course, when they arrive, you know, after seven, eight days, no food, you know, their legs are very weak. They can hardly stand up when they arrive because they haven't used their legs for seven, eight days. <laughs> and then they have to transform themselves back. You know, the heart shrinks because they don't need to be pumping all that blood to the wing muscles for so long. They regenerate their digestive organs and start eating again they're like the nature's transformers you know the cartoon the transformers that change from robots to machines what? <laughs> yes oh my goodness what are they called again these birds this particular one was the bar-tailed godwit this particular subspecies goes from new zealand to the yellow sea and then to alaska and then non-stop from alaska to new zealand in the autumn so it's an incredible journey and so that is definitely a spectacle i would say not to be missed and i think may is the best month may is the best month okay they're all in breeding plumage they look amazing you know, wow. they're looking their best because they're sort of dating while they're on the way up <laughs> which city do you fly to for these sightings i mean some of the best places are in uh, jiangsu there's a place called taotini yenchong but also in uh, bohai bay so quite close to beijing actually or in tangshan in her bay Luanan County in Hebei province also is a really good place. Uh, so it's just like two or three hours drive from Beijing. We will provide these in both in Chinese characters and in English spellings in the show notes. Yeah, so I think that's definitely central to my itinerary. I would also absolutely go to Sichuan. Sichuan is a very special place and there are many species there that can be found nowhere else in the world. Mm. I mean, I remember John McKinnon telling me about the temperate forests in Sichuan are very, very special. 
because most temperate forests used to be as biodiverse as the rainforests. But during the ice ages, when the ice, the glaciers came down, they wiped out quite a lot of the biodiversity from the temperate forests. But mm -hmm. apparently the temperate forests in Sichuan were protected somewhat from the ice age by the geography. So they retained quite a lot of the biodiversity that many other temperate forests around the world lost. So Sichuan's temperate forests are very, very special. You know, and we know, of course, about the giant panda and there's also the red panda. There are many species of bird there that are unique, you know, the fire throat, the black throat, all sorts of parrot bills, you know, incredible birds. And of course, the scenery also is spectacular. And the food, of course, the food is, of course. <laughs> is, uh, is wonderful too. So, you know, it's, it's, I would say that's definitely a, a must visit for any birder would be uh, to go to Sichuan. The timing of the Sichuan park? Well, again, May and June, I'd say are probably the best month. And it, one of my favorite places, to be honest, is up northern Inner Mongolia, just on the edge of the forest, really, on the edge of the Taiga forest. Mm -hmm. There's a little logging town up there called Wuachihan. It's a spectacular place because it's very wild. And if you go there, sort of the end of the migration season, end of May, June, it is full of birdsong. It's like an orchestra. You know, you have flycatchers here, you have the, the warblers here, you have the crakes in the marsh here, you have the curlews singing cuckoos everywhere it's just phenomenal when i go there i just early morning you go out you can just stand there and you're surrounded by this amazing cacophony and it's just wonderful so it's one of my favorite places in china in early june it's it's just magical you know you just shut your eyes and it's just wow and you try and sort of pick out all the different birds different instruments in the orchestra such a different china from what people know yeah it's perfect <laughs> Perfect. How can people find out more about your work or follow your footsteps to hear the birds calls and etc.? Are you on social media anywhere? Yes. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I mean, I think probably Twitter is the best place um, to find me on social media. That's where I'm most active. The handle is just at Birding Beijing. I do have a website also, which is birdingbeijing.com. Fantastic. And uh, there you can find a lot of resources, not just about Beijing, but also other parts of China, particularly a lot of information about the Tibetan Plateau and the, the work with snow leopards there. Thank you so much, Terry. It's thoroughly enjoyable talking to you and sort of totally seeing and I can almost imagine the different view of China through the eyes of the birds. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity to, to speak about it. And thanks everybody for listening and come back next episode. We'll explore another destination and another different angle to engage with China. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs>